The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgar, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today we've got a remarkable guest, Dr. John Peck. He is the executive director of Family Farm Defenders based in Madison, Wisconsin. He holds a BA in economics from Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and a PhD in land resources from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's been the executive director of Family Farm Defenders for about a decade, and he also teaches part-time economics and environmental studies at Madison Area Technical College. He is a global advocate for food sovereignty and justice. He has participated in global justice events around the world, including the WTO meeting and the 2009 UN Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted. I'd like for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your organization. It's a nonprofit, the Family Farm Defenders. Tell me about how Family Farm Defenders got started and what your mission is. Well, I mean, the group was started by uh, basically disgruntled dairy farmers in Wisconsin back in the early 1990s. And the idea behind the group was at that time was challenging the dairy checkoff, which any commodity producers who might be listening will know what checkoffs are. Basically, they're taxed by the federal government in exchange for supposedly promoting their commodities, these generic advertising programs like the gut milk campaign is the one that dairy farmers get are forced to pay into. A lot of farmers find it to be very undemocratic and, of course, making them promote craft food products when they're not promoting their products. So that's what campaign is being challenged by dairy farmers. And they were also concerned about the introduction of synthetic bovine growth hormone, which your listeners are probably familiar with, also known as RBGH, and they were opposing that. So these dairy farmers wanted to form an organization that would advocate for small-scale, sustainable, responsible agriculture, basically, and as soon as they formed that group, sure enough, they found out there were lots of other folks who were also concerned about those issues, you know, consumers, people from the faith community, environmentalists, and even people concerned about global international solidarity. So very quickly, the group expanded beyond just dairy farmers and their friends to, you know, all types of farmers and their friends, farm workers, you know, labor activists. And we adopted a much broader mission of trying to promote and extend the idea of food sovereignty, which sort of came out of a meeting of La Via Campesina, which is the largest umbrella organization in the world for family farmers, fishing, hunting, gathering, indigenous groups. They coined the, that term in 1996 as sort of an alternative to the globalization model that was being pushed by the World Trade Organization. And so then we, in 1999 in Seattle, we, at the protest in Seattle, we met a lot of Via Campesina activists were there and we said, well, we should really adopt food sovereignty as sort of like our broader framework for our mission. So that, that's pretty much what our mission now is to promote food sovereignty in the United States. And um, we're a national group. We have about 5,000 members in all 50 states and some overseas. And, um, yeah, we work on food sovereignty. Okay, I want to back up and try to help our listeners understand a real definition for family farmer. Because I'm sure you've been at meetings where you've got families that work on farms that are contracted mm-hmm. with big corporate players, and they claim that they're family farmers. 
What is your definition of a family farm? Well, our definition obviously is different than, say, like the USDA. I mean, there is no official definition for a family farm, which is what you're going to need to get, you know, benefits from the federal government under different farm programs. I mean, our, our idea of a family farm is basically one where the family themselves actually has decision-making power and they provide the majority of the labor on their farm. I see. So that precludes a lot of people. I mean, you notice I didn't say that they own their land. Right. Half the farmers in the U.S. now no longer own their land. I mean, they're still family farms, but their land may be owned by a bank. I mean, well, most homeowners, I suppose, don't own their homes either, technically. Right. Um, they have a mortgage or something. But um, So we don't say that you have to own your land, but you need to be the primary decision maker. Precludes a lot of factory farms that have outside investors, and the person living on the farm is just a manager under contract with no decision-making power. And then also many, well, what we'd call them factory farms, actually rely on a lot of outside labor. So there may be a family there, but they're not doing the majority of the labor on their own farm. They have to hire all sorts of people and contractors and things. So that that would be another distinguishing feature for a family farm, in our our opinion. Mm -hmm. And I just want to stop and let our listeners know that these issues are covered on your terrific website, which is simply familyfarmers.org. And there are definitions and there are policy issues and policy papers and a fabulous newsletter, I might add. Okay, so this term food sovereignty, you know, I don't think it's something that I read in the headlines of my local papers, and it's not something that I think a lot of us really understand what that means. So let's just go back and talk a little bit about what exactly food sovereignty means? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, for a lot of people in the United States with an unfamiliar concept. I mean, most people are familiar with the idea of food security. Right. That comes out of, well, I actually have done some research on it. Um, it actually comes out of a Cold War context. I, Henry Kissinger is the one who started using the term food security, I believe, first at an FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization, meeting in Rome back in the 1970s. So in the context of, the, of a Cold War scenario, you can see where food becomes a security issue. Who has access to food? Who controls food? And this fit into sort of, well, I would argue we still have this policy today of using food as a weapon. You know, our friends get food, our enemies don't. You know, we'll provide food to those who need it, but on our terms. And so food security, my opinion, I guess, once again, tends to reduce the idea of hunger to a technical problem. So there may be poor people who are hungry, and actually the USDA doesn't say people are hungry anymore. They say that people are, quote, food insecure. Right. So, so the solution to hunger becomes a technical issue of how to crank out enough calories and get to these people. Food security has nothing to say about, for instance, what type of food that is, how it was produced, whether it was democratic, democratically you know, was there any democracy involved in the process? Do the people have, have any say? Is it culturally appropriate? So that that's one of the problems with the whole food security concept and using that to address, it sort of depoliticizes the whole food politics and turns into like a technical solution. So then you have a company like Monsanto saying, well, we can solve food security problems. Oh, yes, they certainly could mm-hmm. under their type of model. And then so food sovereignty was created exactly as an alternative concept. So, you know, farmers around the world have been, well, even what's happening in Colombia right now. I mean, there's huge massive protests in Colombia, the country of Colombia. Mm-hmm. Farmers protesting their trade policies of the government. Farmers around the world were criticizing trade policies, saying, well, you've turned food into a commodity. You're dumping 
crops on us, subsidized crops, destroying our domestic economies. You know, so people say, okay, well, you, you always have a lot of complaints about global trade. What are you for? What's your alternative? You know, and that's where the food sovereignty concept came out of, which Via Campesina drafted and started circulating. And, and the concept basically says, I mean, there's, there's several principles, seven of them actually, but it includes things like food is not a weapon. You know, right. Food should not be used as a weapon. It includes things like, you know, food should be produced in a manner that's socially responsible and ecologically responsible. Farmers have the right to produce food for their own country first. Mm. And I'll say that again. <laughs> yeah. Because people in the U.S. just do not understand that concept at all. But farmers have the right to produce food for their own country first. Mm-hmm. And you only export or import what you don't produce yourself. Mm-hmm. Which is totally contrary to all the global trade deals that are coming down the pike. And they have been down the pike. To the point where countries are forced to kill animals. We saw this in Portugal when we were there. Portugal is forced to kill thousands of dairy cows because they had to import milk from Greece under the European version of the Farm Bill. It's called the Common Agricultural Policy Cap in Europe. So there's an example of food sovereignty being violated horribly, I would argue, in order to comply with some supposed free trade rule. And, um, and I can give you kind of examples of that. So food sovereignty does provide a real – I mean, for a U.S. audience, you know, many people in the U.S. – don't like the idea of sovereignty or sounds like the king or queen or something. You know, we started talking about, well, this is an effort at local, re-democratizing, relocalizing your food system. Mm-hmm. Some other people have a different opinion of the Boston Tea Party, but I would argue the Boston Tea Party was a food sovereignty fight. <laughs> you know, great. here we had a foreign corporation imposing taxation on an import against people who didn't want that, and they fought back and did massive, obviously, corporate sabotage in a harbor in Boston, destroying $5 million worth of tea in one night. But that's an example of like a food sovereignty fight, basically people saying, we want control over our food, you know, we don't want you telling us what to do, corporation X, Y. So that that's, and we can think of similar struggles today, you know, land grabbing, which is going on, commodity dumping, consumers not having the right to know what's in their food. These are all food sovereignty fights. Right. They're all policy issues that affect what's available on our plates and everyone else around the world. And that's really why I wanted to have you on is because we sit down with our dinner plate and I don't think we understand enough about the policies that go into the quality and kind of food that we and our neighbors around the planet have the right or ability to eat. So let's talk a little bit about, you touched on this and I want to bring it forth, free trade versus fair trade. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Right? So we had NAFTA. and Yeah, North American Free Trade Agreement. Right. Yeah. And now we're looking at something called TPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. So mm-hmm. first let's just go back and, and make a differentiation between free trade and fair trade. Yes, okay. I mean, the idea of free trade sort of came out of the Bretton Woods institutions, which were formed in 1944. World War II is ending. The U.S. wants to recreate the new world economy based upon a different model. And part of that model is going to be creating these institutions. They're at World Bank, International Monetary Fund. At the time, it was called GATS, General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which turned into the World Trade Organization later. So these three institutions outside of the United Nations context, I should remind folks, 
are created by the world superpowers to create a new world economy. Part of their mission, then, is to basically reduce barriers to trade and create this global free trade economy. So part of that involves such things as reducing any restrictions on, say, food, food imports, exports, trying to limit you know, what they consider to be barriers to trade, which would include things such as consumer labeling, for example, yeah. is considered a barrier to trade under the World Trade Organization. I mean, I have to constantly remind my economics students that you know all these labels we somehow take for granted in the United States are actually totally illegal under World Trade Organization rules. You know, labels like organic or grass-fed or dolphin-safe or wasn't tested on animals. All these rules are a violation of free trade regimes because they allow consumers to discriminate amongst products based upon how they're produced. And that's considered to be a trade barrier. Hmm. So that's something to be aware of. Like, a, say, for instance, NAFTA, which was passed in the 1990s, North American Free Trade Agreement. The idea was, well, we're going to create this super economy connecting Canada with the U.S. and Mexico. In order to be part of this agreement, each of those countries are forced to basically harmonize their policies on all a whole range of issues, including agriculture. So under the NAFTA, for instance, what happened in Mexico is Mexico, prior to NAFTA, limited imports of corn from the United States. And that's because there's millions of corn farmers in Mexico whose livelihoods depend on producing corn. Most of the corn they produce in Mexico is actually very different from what we produce in the U.S. They're producing very traditional varieties of corn, mostly for making tortillas. I mean, it's mostly for human consumption, very nutritionally different than the corn raised in the United States in most cases as well. But once NAFTA is passed, the floodgates literally open and corn can be dumped into Mexico from the United States. And the only reason the U.S. corn is competitive in Mexico is because we subsidize it. There are no subsidies in Mexico for corn. Farmers there don't get a check from the government for growing corn like they do here. So all of a sudden we have all this cheap corn being exported by U.S. agribusiness into Mexico. You know, we're talking millions of tons of corn almost overnight. And what is, what's the consequences? It destroys the Mexican agricultural system. You know, millions of farmers go out of business, lose their land, and then end up heading north as migrants to this country where the jobs supposedly are now. And that's just one example of like what a free trade system can do to your food economy. And now the the Trans-Pacific Partnership is basically NAFTA applied to the entire Pacific Rim. So we're talking about all the countries that are around the Pacific Ocean want to create a similar mega economy like NAFTA with eliminating all these different barriers, quote barriers, to trade. And that's going to allow, for instance, we've already seen this, like the U.S.-Korea free trade deal, which has already passed. So now U.S. rice companies can basically dump rice into Korea with hardly any restrictions. You know, Korean consumers are not going to be allowed to have labeling that lets them to identify GMOs, similar to what the problem we have in the United States where we don't have comprehensive labeling on GMOs mandated, um, I mean, there's all sorts of other, you know, rules that are going to be, you know, they can't be restricting U.S. imports based on mad cow concerns or use of steroids or antibiotics. So, I mean, there's all sorts of impacts for farmers and consumers when these trade deals are basically crafted around the demands of corporate agribusiness profit, which is who, that's who it's mostly they're catering to. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. John Peck. He's the executive director of Family Farm Defenders based in Madison, Wisconsin. So 
John, you touched on who really benefits from this, which are the global corporations that will gain many dollars in profits. Where do the farmers and the people stand who really are going to lose from these agreements? For example, do we possibly have any power within us to fight these global giants? Well, I mean, we we have to. Otherwise, I mean, we're doomed if we don't raise our voices and get our politicians to just say no to these types of trade deals. One mythology to dispel right away is the idea that without these trade deals, there'll be no trade. Right. That is just not true. Trade has gone on for eons, millennia, without trade deals. I mean, you don't need to have a WTO to conduct trade at all. You just have different sets of rules, and maybe those rules will be better. I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's part of my idea of, of human progress, is that supposedly things get better, not worse. Right. And these trade rules make things worse. They don't make them better. It's not lifting all boats. I mean, it's basically the least common denominator is driving these trade deals. So as consumers, I mean, well, I mean, just to give an example, melamine. Mm. I mean, maybe there are people listening who have, who recall the melamine scandal of just a few years back, where basically we had 20,000 dogs and cats in the United States died from toxic pet food from China, contaminated with melamine, which is a byproduct of the coal industry. It mimics nitrogen when you run chemical tests on food. It looks like protein, so that's why people... You know, disreputable companies put it into things. It looks like it's protein content when it's not. And so we have all these pets die. FDA has no power to do to mandate a recall, so they voluntarily pull this stuff off the shelves and then they just mix it in with livestock feed. So we still got it. We still got it in the end. It was just fed to cows and pigs and other animals instead. But then the worst thing is that we had all these babies died in China from it because it also got into infant formula. So here's an example of like. This type of product should not even be allowed, period, in food. But the World Trade Organization, the TPP, these trade deals basically made a very, what should have been an isolated, you know, contamination problem into like a global problem because mm-hmm. this stuff was transshipped all around the world under so many different labels and people couldn't find it. There was no right to know, you know, no proper enforcement, and, you know, that's just one example of where, you know, consumers and farmers were hurt by trade, out, you know, basically runaway free trade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how can we, I mean, ways we can, we can like, slow down this juggernaut are, well, basically, first of all, demanding that Congress not approve fast-track authority. That's what they used to, to deal with other trade deals in the past. They basically first pass fast-track, which means then Congress cannot amend or change the trade deal. They have to vote on it up or down within a certain number of days. So basically they're tying their hands then, and they're forced to approve these deals as fast as possible with hardly any public input or any change in the process. So we need to first stop fast track from happening, convincing Congress not to allow fast track authority for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And then we just need to stop these trade deals, period. I mean, our group would argue there should be a moratorium on all free trade deals. We should go back and reconsider every one, possibly revoke them all, Instead, implement a fair trade policy. You know, a fair trade policy would increase rules, would make standards better, not worse. It would require, for instance, living wages for workers. It would require consumer, mandatory consumer labeling, truth and labeling. You know, it would improve, you know, animal rights and workers' rights standards around the world, not decrease them. 
you know, that, that's an alternative. And that, that movement already exists. I mean, it's outside, you know, the formal framework. We have a fair trade movement happening. We're trying to do that with certain commodities. But why not have a whole food farm system that's based on the fair trade model? That would be wonderful. Well, there's a huge PR machine working against having people adopt this kind of thinking, right? And oh, we, sure. Yeah. We, and we have to be savvy citizens, really, to recognize when the PR machine is working. Do you have any strategies for doing that? Well, first of all, people, I often, you know, the, one of the arguments I often hear against this is like, well, we need to have cheap food. Yeah. I mean, people in the U.S. Have, have bought into this idea of cheap food, and there's a couple of responses to that. One is, well, first of all, the food is not really cheap. If you look at all the hidden costs, I mean, the price doesn't reflect the true cost of the food. So we have massive subsidies. We have, you know, a type 2 diabetes epidemic, which is unprecedented in human history due to junk food overconsumption in this country. Example, like all the food contamination outbreaks, we do not have a very safe food system, I would argue. We have one of the probably most dangerous food systems in the world for all the reasons I just gave. So we need to first dispel the idea that like cheap food is okay or acceptable. I mean, I'm, I'm just amazed that people think it's perfectly okay what kids eat in their school lunch program. Right. I mean, I've been to the school lunches and I would not want to eat that. And I can't imagine we think that's okay for our children. Why are we giving our children, why are we treating them as guinea pigs? I, I don't know. So that would be the first thing to encourage people. Like, you know, we need to improve our expectations and our standards for what we think is good food. We need to be willing to pay a little bit more, to be honest. I mean, we have, like, the lowest food bill of any industrialized country in the world. You know, we pay very little for food in this country. And, you know, maybe, maybe you know, the food would actually taste better and, you know, we'd have a more quality experience with our agricultural system and our food, our culinary, you know, experience if we actually were willing to pay a little bit more. And the other, the other thing, too, is to tell, you know, remind people that, you know, good food doesn't necessarily have to be more expensive. And part of the reason our food is so expensive is we have these giant corporations which control the food system. So they create monopolies and oligopolies where they can price gouge both farmers and consumers. So here we have a recession going on and some of the food giants are making record profits. Mm-hmm. record profits during a recession, you know, Kraft and Cargill and, you know, just go through the whole list. And how is that? Well, it's because they basically control both ends of the food system. And so they can squeeze farmers and consumers. So it's quite possible to have food that's not only better, farmers getting paid more for it, but consumers might actually end up not paying any more for it themselves because all, what's the biggest share of the food dollar is profits, profit margins for these giant food companies. Mm-hmm. You know, the question I always like to ask John is, why can't people afford good food when they find it unaffordable? And it's I like to look at the issue of living wage legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, if people can't afford to eat well, what's wrong going farther upstream? So that's just another thing to throw in, in the mix. When oh, sure. And that, that's it. how Henry Ford, you know, approached workers at his auto plant. He wanted them to earn enough that they could buy their own cars. Exactly. And, and we, you know, today here in Madison, we're, we just had a, we're still having big walkouts by low-wage workers in the fast food industry. Well, one of the women I heard earlier today at the at the rally said, you know, I work at Dunkin' Donuts. I don't earn enough money at Dunkin' Donuts to be able to even buy decent food. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty amazing. Like someone working in the food system can't even earn enough to actually buy decent food. And that, that's what, I mean, we have the lowest wages throughout the entire food system in this country. We have family farmers who qualify for food stamps, living in poverty. We have farm workers who are horribly exploited. 
and we have people working in canning plants, meatpacking plants, no unions, barely minimum wage, no benefits, you know, all the way up to the poor people working in the warehouses, stocking the shelves at the big box retail chains. I mean, they all have horrible wages, horrible working conditions, horrible benefits, if any. I mean, that's just a crime, I think, that we treat people in our food food sector so shabbily when, when food is such an important thing in all of our lives. Exactly. We just have a few minutes, and I know there are many issues on your website, and there are many issues that you're involved with globally. I wanted to ask you about how someone who has a background in economics and environmental studies ends up as the executive director of Family Farm Defenders, you know, what drives your engine to do this work. But I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything in particular that you're working on that you want our listeners to know. Well, I mean, one one reason I, I care so much about food is because I grew up on a farm and I care about agriculture. I mean, and I call it agriculture for a reason. I don't call it agribusiness. It's agriculture. Sure. You know, food is different. What we eat and share around the table is different than widgets or something, like I teach in my economics class. So, so that's why I think we need to treat food differently, and I think we need to treat those who are provide food to us much better. I mean, they deserve dignity and justice and a, a good livelihood like everybody else. So, and, and that includes around the world, you know. Like, so I, I, you know, I consider farmers in Mexico my friends, not my enemies, which is contrary to how U.S. agribusiness, they, they want farmers to fight amongst other farmers, and they want consumers to fight against farmers, and they want farmers to fight farm workers, you know, like we're all pitted against each other, so our dog-eat-dog race to the bottom, which is not how, you know, the world's going to be made into a better place, and that's one one thing which food sovereignty also challenges is the whole idea that we need to privatize everything, maybe not, maybe seeds shouldn't be private property, right. maybe land should not be privatized, maybe it'd be better if it was communally managed, the whole idea of, like, privatization, this question the whole idea of commodifying everything, maybe some things should not be bought and sold. Maybe things should, should be run as cooperatives rather than as com- competitive corporate structures. Mm-hmm. I mean, co-ops are a great model in many ways of how we could restructure our economy. In fact, you know, more people work for co-ops and corporations in the world, including huge you know, farmers' co-ops in other countries, maybe not so much in the U.S. So, I mean, those are all you know, ways we need to like not only – challenge our current system, but we need to provide an alternative vision, you know, and there are practical models of this, too. We're not just making this, you know, it's not just pie in the sky. There's real living examples of food sovereignty in action all around us every day. You know, community gardens are expanding. Farmers markets are really popular. You know, local food policy councils are recreating zoning laws to allow for urban agriculture. You no longer be criminalized if you have backyard chickens. I mean, just there's lots of work being done at the local and state levels. The problem is it doesn't seem to be trickling up into federal policy or our trade policy, and that that's a huge challenge is how can we – we're in the belly of the beast in many ways. How can we transform the United States into a, a different type of actor, you know, on, on the global stage? And that, that's the big, biggest challenge I see. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for raising these issues for our listeners. I want to recommend that everyone go to familyfarmers.org to learn more about Family Farm Defenders. And I want to make sure that I also point out a few things on your website that I love, and including the 25 things you can do to promote local food sovereignty, which we can start right here at home. So mm-hmm. please visit the website 
John is the Executive Director of Family Farm Defenders based in Madison, Wisconsin. The website is terrific. I subscribe to the newsletter, and I want to recommend that as well. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank you, John, for your tremendous work and vision and in helping our listeners understand these huge issues. Yeah, well, thanks for caring about what we grow and eat.